In Matthew chapter 13, Jesus gives us the parable of the sower. In this parable, the seed of the word of God falls upon four different soils of the heart. The four types of soil really uh, represent the condition of our hearts I found here in this parable. The first soil is the uncomprehending heart, or the heart that doesn't understand. The second is the stony heart, a heart that's full of joy, but when pressure hits and temptations rise, falls under pressure. The third soil is the soil of the stony heart, that the, the, the root goes down just briefly, but then the cares of this world, the, the riches of this world choke out the word from the stony heart. And there's the soil of the good heart that Jesus says falls into deep, rich soil and produces some 30, some 60, some 100-fold abundance of fruit. The condition of the heart, of our heart matters. The condition of the heart of God's people have gotten us in serious trouble in the past as a church. And so it is in this passage today that the condition of the heart of God's people had brought them in the book of Nehemiah to a place of serious trouble because of their gross sin and disobedience. And take you back on a journey of where we've been and I'll bring you back forward. I'm just going to take a high level view of this. The Jews have been in exile for over 120 years at the writing of this book. And Nehemiah um, approaches this entourage that had made their way up from, from Jerusalem to the capital city of Susa. And he asked them one question that changed the trajectory of his life forever. The question was, how's Jerusalem? How are the people in Jerusalem? And the answer that, that this entourage gave him drove him to his knees. He sensed God's call on his life and approached the king about what he believed God had given him. And the king gave him, gave him the right to leave and go down to Jerusalem. While he was there, Nehemiah devised this plan and this strategy to rebuild the walls in the city of Jerusalem, a plan that was well executed. And I told you before, and I'll say it again, I think, you know, God is a planner. If, if you don't think God is a planner and an organizer, you have not taken a look at the design of creation. You haven't taken a look at the design of the universes that we know of, that are in perfect harmony and balance. God is a planner. He's an organizer. And he's an executor. So planning and execution are not unscriptural, nor are they unspiritual. So Nehemiah prayed. He planned. He prepared. And then he provoked others to join him, and together they plunged in. Last week I concluded chapter 6 by telling you about the people who, who the people, they had now become united in their effort, and they accomplished a feat in 52 days that should have taken them two to three years to complete. 
There was absolutely nothing natural about how they were, how they went about accomplishing this. It was an impossible feat. But how many of you know that God specializes in the impossible? That God delights in doing the impossible. When God does the supernatural, and we see it, family, our hearts should lean in towards him. And this is what happened with the children of Israel. I believe that the, that the people of Israel were ripe for hearing and receiving God's word because of what he had just accomplished. See, God uses story and he uses testimony to demonstrate for us who he is so that we will listen to what he says. Did you hear what I said? God uses the power of story and testimony to demonstrate to us who he is so that we'll listen to what he says. In the book of Psalms, 78 verse 5, there's, there's a, David uses this word sequence that I think really describes what I just said and fits what the people were experiencing. David says he established his testimony in Jacob and he appointed his law to Israel. So he established his testimony first and then he appointed the law. See, God demonstrates for us first what he's able to do so that we'll listen to what he says. So, because of the miracles that had happened, the people were set up to listen to what God had done. And not only that, but to be partakers of the supernatural work that God wanted to accomplish through them, through the building of the walls. But here's what I, want, I don't want you to miss. You see, the story of Nehemiah is really not so much about rebuilding or repairing the walls. It's not so much about leadership. I mean, it's about those things. But let me tell you, it's more about God rebuilding and restoring his people. That's what this, that's what this whole narrative is about. See, God calls Nehemiah to build the wall so that he can call his people back to himself. Now, before we read the text today, I want to make a couple of observations that I think are going to serve us well. Because remember, the, the, the children of Israel, the Jews, were in exile now over 120 years. And during the exilic period, the Hebrew language would have undergone some changes from the native or the origin tongue, Hebrew tongue, that Moses wrote about when he wrote the law. Many people also who were part of the Jewish nation, God is speaking, you better listen. <laughs> no, go ahead, you can leave it open. God might want to speak some more. Thanks, so, Travis. Many of the people in the Hebrew nation were born in exile. So what they would have learned to speak would have been the Persian language or, or Aramaic and not necessarily their native tongue. As a matter of fact, there are a few people, I'm sure, that had never even heard their native tongue spoken before. So it would have been difficult at best for the people to have a clear understanding as a group of, of what was being read. Now, I want to give you an example of that. Now, I speak pretty good English. You know. Pretty good. I, I do speak Ebonics every now and then. But I speak pretty good English. You know, I don't speak the king's English, you know, like, like 
your hair is dirty, you know. I don't, I don't do that very well. But I do speak English pretty well. Now, I want to give you a sample of the oldest, the oldest English version of the Bible that has been written. It was written by John Wycliffe. And I know most of you are looking at this passage, and for those of you who know the passage, you're piecing it together. But this is how the original, the original English Bible was written. You know what that says? It's Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. It said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Next slide, Nate. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. Find meek, lowly, or gentle in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Now hear me. This is Wycliffe's version. It only went back 600 years to 1382. Between the writing of the law and the reading of the law by Ezra, more than 1,000 years had elapsed. So during the time of the exile, the people had been broken. Their hearts were broken. Their spirit was broken. They were a broken people. They were born and raised in squalor. They didn't know any better. They were the laughing stock. They were the whipping boy. They were, they were the ghetto children. They were the slum of the slums to, to those around them. They were miserable. They were ready for something different. So the first thing we see is that the people now have a heart to receive. They have receptive hearts to the word of God. So let's pick it up in Nehemiah chapter 8, beginning at verse 1. And all the people gathered as one man, everybody say one man, into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. And my version might read a little different than yours. I'm reading out the ESV. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what was heard on that first day of the seventh month. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early in the morning until midday. In the presence of the men and the women, in the presence of the men and of the women, and those who could understand, and the ears of the people were attentive to the book of the law. They had hearts to receive. There are three things I want you to see in this text. First, the first thing is that the people gathered as one man. They were united. I've said this before, and I want to say it to you again. Whenever God wants to do something, the first thing that Satan will do is he'll try to come against God's unified plan for his people. See, Satan knows that where there is unity, there is strength. He knows that. In Acts chapter 2, beginning at verse 1, it says that the disciples were all in the upper room on one accord, in one place. And when that happened, it said, suddenly, everybody say suddenly. suddenly. So it didn't take a long time to happen, y'all. 
When everyone got in one accord in one place, the Bible says, suddenly there came a sound from heaven like a rushing mighty wind that filled the house that they were sitting. And the Holy Spirit descended on them. Where there is unity, the presence of the Lord is there. So the devil will fight it. So the people are gathered together as one man. 42,360 people united for the first time. These people have been scattered, and now they were one. They were unified. The second thing I want you to see is they gathered together at the water gate. Now, I couldn't have planned this in my wildest imagination that today we're talking about life springs and what water actually symbolizes, and I'm finding myself talking about the water gate. And here's what's interesting about the water gate, how they gathered at the water gate. The first mention of, of this gate was found in Nehemiah chapter 3, verse 26. But I, but I want you to see this, because I've looked at this passage time and again, and I never saw this. There is no mention of all the ten gates, there is no mention of the water gate needing repair. All of the other gates required repair, but the water gate didn't need repair. Now we're here in chapter 8, and the walls have been completed, and now we find the people meeting again at the water gate, but this time they're not, they're not, they're not building side by side with each other. This time is for the reading of the law. My research also shows me that this was a practice that remained long after the, the city had been destroyed, long after the walls were decimated. This was a practice where they'd meet at, at the Watergate wall for the word of the law to be written, to be read to them at the Watergate. See, the Watergate, for whatever reason, remained intact during the destruction of Jerusalem. So it was at the water gate that the children of Israel in their darkest hour would hear the reading of the law. And so the water gate, even up to this point, was associated with the preaching and the teaching of God's word. From the water gate, the Gion Spring supplied water to the people of Jerusalem. And the Gion Spring, life spring, see this the life spring written all over this message. The Gion Spring represented the only permanent water source in the city of Jerusalem at that time, water. And as I was researching, I thought about all the scriptures that, that speak to water, and I was reminded of a passage in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 26, where Paul talks about that the church of Jesus Christ, his church, his bride, is cleansed by water with the washing of the, whoo, of the word of God. By the washing, with the washing of the word of God. Tom, could you grab me a glass of water? If you don't mind. So the word of God cleanses, water cleanses. The word of God is represented by or symbolic. The water is symbolic of the word of God. Then again in John chapter 7, beginning at verse 37, Jesus makes this statement. He says, thank you, Tom. He says, come to me. If you're thirsty, believe in me. Because if you believe in me, out of your heart, 
talk about the condition of the heart. Now, out of your heart will flow springs, rivers of living water. So the people gathered at the water gate. And their hearts were ready to receive. Third thing that, that I find in this text is that they call for Ezra the priest. And Ezra was the ideal person to minister in this situation. See, Ezra had come to Jerusalem 14 years prior with the sole intent of bringing God's people back to him to revive them. Ezra 7.10 says that he was the priest and scribe who had prepared the, his heart to seek the law of God and to do it and to teach in Israel. So Ezra, his heart had already been prepared and this is what he was called to do. So it makes perfect sense to me that in this text we find Ezra now, not Nehemiah, but Ezra standing on a platform, a wooden platform, the first pulpit we see in the Bible. The pulpit must be godly. The first pulpit we see in the Bible. So he stands at the pulpit and he's facing the people. They can hear him and they can see him. And he stands before them and he reads to them out of the law, the book of the law for hours and hours. Why was he able to do that, Pastor? Because the people were hungry. Their hearts were receptive to hear the word of God. They had hearts to receive. What would happen in here if I had you guys sit in here for hours and listen to the word of God? <laughs> uh, I, yeah, I heard somebody say Ron is in there mostly by himself. <laughs> but let me piggyback off of what you just said. I have a friend of mine who goes to Africa ministers in Africa. And he says, without fail, when I go to these places where they've never, in, in Africa now, where they've never seen an African-American missionary, I get to these places and, and, and these people are so hungry for the word that sometimes they walk for miles all day carrying the food that they're going to eat just to be able to sit in the presence of other believers and have a shot at listening to the word of God. Because they're hungry. The people here were hungry. They stood for hours and listened to the word of God and it changed their hearts. I don't want you to miss this. They listened to the word of God and the word changed them and revival broke out right there. Here's what's important. See, the triumph of their lives, rebuilding the wall, now begin to pale in comparison with what God was doing on the inside of them. What took place in them eclipsed the building of the wall. You see, while they were rebuilding, busy rebuilding the wall, God was busy rebuilding their hearts. While they were restoring the wall, God was restoring them. While they were busy repairing the wall so they could find their identity within them, God was busy tearing down their stony walls of their hearts so that he could, they could find their identity in him. What happens? Revival breaks out. 
Revival breaks out to the degree that the effect that, that happened on them in that moment, after they had built those wall, that wall in 52 days that it took for them to build the wall, the effect of that lasted far longer than the 52 days that led them to that point. As a matter of fact, Scripture tells us that that was just the beginning. 2,500 years later, today we're still talking about the greatness of God in that story written in his book. See, history is not just history for the follower. History from this book is his story. It's God's story being manifest in our lives. The power of the word of God brings revival to our hearts. And that's why here at this church, here at LifeSpring, we teach expository sermons. Now, you'll hear me teaching from time to time topical sermons. I, I don't mind teaching topical sermons, but I believe in teaching from the word of God. That's our philosophy here. It's about his word. Because what God says in his word is more, than, more important than anything that I could ever say. It's more important than any, any illustration I could ever give you. Because no matter what I say, it will never have the transformative power of God in it unless it's based on his word because only the word of God has the power to transform our lives. So the people hear God's word and they receive it. And it moves them from a heart to receive to a heart to repent. They have repentant hearts. In fact... This passage tells us that they were so grieved by their sin and so convicted by the word of God that Nehemiah and the others that were with them had to pull them off the ledge, had to, had to bring them out of their grief. Let's look at verse 9 of chapter 8. And Nehemiah, who was the governor in Ezra, the priest and scribe and the Levites, who taught the people, said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or reap or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. And then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat and drink the sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready for this day. This day is holy to the Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people saying, be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. They heard the word of the Lord family and it broke their hearts. It led them to a place of repentance. I don't know about you, but it's, it's not very often that I read the word of God that something about it doesn't grip me that the Holy Spirit doesn't turn the searchlight on my heart and reveal some things to me that I need to repent for. And so I want to say to you today, if the word of the Lord is not bringing you a point to, where, to, a point to where it's revealing insufficiencies and inadequacies and, and sins in your life, You need to ask the Holy Spirit. 
What is it that's in me that's preventing your word from driving me to a place of repentance? Because that's what the word of God does. That's what the Holy Spirit does through the word of God. They repented. Their hearts were broken because they realized that they were in this predicament because of their own sin and their own disobedience. They couldn't blame it on their forefathers. They couldn't blame it on Geshem or Tobiah. They couldn't blame it on Sambalat. It was their current sin and their current condition that was to blame, and they had to own it. It was a kairos moment for them. You ever heard that term kairos before? Kairos is a moment in time where God gets our attention, where we know that he is speaking. This was a kairos moment for them. God was speaking to them through his word. See, up to this point, they hadn't listened, and they hadn't obeyed the voice of God. They hadn't obeyed his word. But at this moment, y'all, they, they respond with repentance, and God lavishes his mercy and his grace on them. See, I believe the rebuilding of the wall was a tangible act of restitution. Here's what I mean by that. In chapter 4 of this book, verse 6, it says that the people had, they had a mind to work. That word mind meant heart. They had built half the wall, and they had a heart to work. They were in unity, and I believe that restitution was made because God was saying, listen, because of the posture of your heart, because you're moving towards me, I'm going to move towards you. Because you want to be restored, because you want to be renewed, because you've repented of your sins, now I'm going to move towards you. See, the word of the Lord brings conviction that leads to repentance. <laughs> but then after repentance, there's joy. And so the third thing we find in our text today is that they have rejoicing hearts. I love this passage in Psalms 19, beginning at verse 7, where the psalmist writes, the law of the Lord is perfect. The law of the Lord is perfect. What does it do? It revives the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure. What does it do? It makes wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. They had heard the word of the Lord. They had repented, and now their hearts were rejoicing. Look at what it says in verse 12. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and, and send portions and to make great rejoicing. Everyone say great rejoicing. Great. See, there's a difference between the joy of the world and the joy of the Lord. How many of you know that? See, when, when the joy of the Lord is, is evident because your life has been transformed, it's a real joy. It's not a fleeting joy. It's not a, a, a happy joy that's based on the happenings. The joy of the Lord is a great joy, and it is a lasting joy, and it will cause you to rejoice. So there was great rejoicing. Why? Because they understood the words that were declared to them. They understood it. They understood it comprehensively, you guys. Family, they understood it with their head and with their heart. We set out to build this wall. We set out to do this. 
but we didn't do it. We, we didn't do this. God did this. And they understood that because now their hearts had been transformed. In his book, Be Determined, Dr. Warren Wiersbe says this. He says, the Bible is not a magic book that changes people or circumstances because somebody reads it or recites it. God's word must be understood before it can enter the heart and release its life-changing power. At the end of the day, family, it all boils down to the condition of our hearts. And when we come to grips with the condition of our heart and then allow the Holy Spirit by the word of God to reveal and to deal with the sin issues that have been buried deep in the soils of our hearts. Only then will we begin to experience revival. Only then will we begin to experience the supernatural power of God. Only then will we be able to see it move in our lives in ways that we can only imagine. It's for us. What is the condition of the soil of your heart? That's the question. Now I want to close with this passage of scripture here that I started with this morning. In Matthew chapter 13. Jesus speaks to the condition of your heart. Gives us the parable of the four soils. Listen to what he says in verse 18. Hear then the parable of the sower. Anyone who hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes, snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on the rocky ground, this is the one that hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Man, that word sure was good. Mm. I believe I'm changed. So they receive it with joy and they have this zeal and they go out. Yet there's no root in himself. But it endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on the account of the word, listen, don't think for a moment that the enemy wants to let the word of God and the seed of the word of God take root in the deep, rich soil of your heart. Don't think for a moment that the enemy is not going to come and challenge the word of God that is able to transform your life and your heart. Don't think for a moment he won't challenge it because he will. So when persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. For what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what is sown on the soil, on the good soil, this is the one who hears the word, understands it, he indeed bears fruit and yields in one case 100-fold, in another 60, and in another 30. Won't you shut your eyes for just a minute?
you are here today. And the Holy Spirit is tugging at your heart. Maybe you, maybe your heart looks like a farmland where, where you have patches of real deep, rich soil and the seed of the word of God is taking root and growing deep, strong, luscious green plants producing fruit. But maybe, no, not maybe, there are areas in your life that's fallow ground, filled with rocks that you haven't committed to the Lord. And the seed of the word of God continues to hit that soil and hit those rocks. And you get it for a moment and you persevere for a moment and you persist for a moment. But persecution comes and chokes out the word. And you're unfruitful in that area of your life. I want you to ask the Holy Spirit in this moment to turn the searchlight of the word of God that you have heard on your, on your heart. Ask him to reveal to you those areas where you've neglected to allow the word of God to take root, to grow in you. And then ask him what he wants you to do about it today.